Yeah, um, I am the uh, director of human performance at TCU. I've been in place here for, uh, this is my 16th year uh, with uh, TCU baseball. Prior to that, you know, worked with football for about 13 or 14 years. And um, yeah, so baseball season just started uh, last week. We're, we're underway and so life is busy. Uh, so let's dive into actually, first of all, the 16 years. How can our listeners out there create stability in a world that's pretty unstable? Yeah. So, you know, when I started in the field of strength and conditioning, I saw my mentors at the time. Um, just the the field was. Hold on a second, Justin. You're good. Oh, sorry. Come on. I'm going to have people popping in and out because my office becomes an equipment room. You're good, dude. Don't worry about it. Um, so back to my thoughts there. Um, you know, I saw my mentors having a job hopping away, making 30 some grand at, at the, at the time, this was, you know, 15 or 20 years ago, making 30 grand in strength and conditioning, working 80 hour weeks and switching schools with their kids every three years for the next opportunity. That was five grand more, 10 grand more. And Early in my career, I moved, I think I had 13 or 17, I can't remember, something like that, 13 addresses in the first three years of my career. And I hated moving and I didn't want to be that person. So I was just like every other strength coach, young strength coach, got to the job at TCU and thought, man, I'll be here three years and then it's on to something bigger and better. And it just didn't happen that way. I loved Fort Worth. I loved TCU. I loved, I loved the uh, people that I was working with. Um, alongside my colleagues and it just it just kind of it just grew and 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 we kept building baseball the program kept getting better and better and better and it it you know just turned out to be a place where I wanted to stay I guess um that's I really don't I, I don't know how it happened because I was a young strength coach that thought man I'm out of here in three years right I'm gonna go somewhere else next job bigger better all this stuff there wasn't anything bigger and better at the time I guess and um uh, we made, we made TCU bigger and better. How do you handle being on the road? You know, so you're not traveling and, and having new addresses, but you know, baseball season, it's a lot traveling with the team. How do you handle that? And any of our uh, listeners out there that maybe they're basketball or baseball strength coaches and they're traveling and they're struggling with that balance, what would be a piece of advice you'd give them? Yeah. So one of the best things that I've done in the, um, in the last two years was out of necessity. And that was, to move my morning groups, um, we found time in the afternoon to start training, especially with baseball. It was a nightmare having six, 7 a.m. groups. And sometimes you have to do that. We had to do that previously, but we found and made time for our athletes to train later in the morning, early in the afternoon before practice. And that was one of the best things I've done to, uh, I guess, create a better work-life balance. Because in the past, you'd be on the road for four days, you'd get back you know, in the Mountain West, we'd get back at two, three, four in the morning. And then sometimes you'd have athletes in here at 6 a.m., right? Kids that didn't travel, they'd be in here at 6 a.m. because that's when they had to lift. And so that work-life balance was a nightmare. You get off the road on a, on a Tuesday. Um, even if we just play across town on a Tuesday night, you're still not getting home till 10.30 or 11. Wind down, it's midnight you've got a group at 6 a.m. possibly. And so moving groups out of the morning and trying to structure it where they can get sleep, where I can get sleep, I can spend time with my little one at home 
after we get off the road, instead of having to be back at TCU at six or six thirty in the morning, seven in the morning, something like that, where I can roll in mid morning and then have my groups at noon, roll over to practice. It's just structuring my day um, differently than the typical strength coach has been an absolute lifesaver in the last two years since I've had a little one. Anybody that's listening that maybe just like you manages a department that has people below them, what would be your piece of advice to make sure that they can structure it like that for their staff? Yeah, it's, it's, it's having to work. We only have one weight room here at TCU. So it's really having to um, work with each other a ton to figure out that scheduling. But one of the questions that I ask all of our, all of our staff members here on their, um, basically on their yearly reviews was, were you the strength coach that you wanted to be? Were you the uh, person at home that you wanted to be? Were you, were you the father, the husband, whatever it is that you wanted to be at home? Because I, I don't want you to be the strength coach that you want to be. And then at home, you're not the person that you want to be at home with your kids, with your wife. And so I want to make sure that they have that work-life balance. Um, and it is, it's, it's just a give and take of, of figuring out what teams can be in here at what times and, and really communicating and working together so that you don't have to be up here at six in the morning if, 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 you know, if we can possibly avoid that. Uh, we've also tried structuring teams so that the last team is out of the weight room before 5 p.m. So that all of our teams are in here essentially starting their training session no later than four. Um, and I think that's been a big thing that has, uh, that's helped some of our staff members in the last year. Now, it's not always perfect. It's not, you know, there's ideal and there's optimal. Ideal is, is, the perfect scenario, that's not always how, how it works. Sometimes you got to have optimal. What's the best, um, what's the, uh, you know, the best, the best situation around ideal. And sometimes that's early morning workout. Sometimes it's late, late at night, but we're trying our best to avoid those, you know, 6am. And then, oh, I've also got another team at 5.30pm rolling in here. And now I'm going to be at work for, you know, 16 hours today. We're trying our best to avoid that staying here on that kind of topic, the fact of being in an administrative role, we're starting to see strength coaches get more and more of those roles that I think used to be held by athletic trainers. If you could just elaborate on that for our listeners who are eyeing that and want it, and you know, maybe if it's harder than people think, let them know. But what would you say to those that aspire to get those you know, administrative positions? What are the good, the bad? And looking back on it, what would you tell yourself if you had the ability to? Yeah, so the good with it is just the uh, ability to start, in a way, kind of blending um, thought processes into a holistic, a holistic approach. You know, we know that it's not just the siloed approach is antiquated. And that's what we see so much, uh, so much of in strength and conditioning is that strength and conditioning is siloed from practices, from the skill development, from the from the technical and the tactical aspects, from the uh, sports medicine, and they're all siloed. And so that's one area that I've really tried to have a big influence on with our younger coaches, especially, is that we need to blend all these pieces together. You need to be going to your sport coaches and, and seeing what's happening at practice. You need to be going to practice. Um, you need to be looking at workloads. We need to try to get GPS with these energy system dependent sports so that you know what's going on at practices. It's blending all of these pieces so that we can create ultimate athletic performance and um, hopefully injury reduction, health in our athletes. That's really what it's all about. That's the good. The bad is being 
on the administrative side is not all it's cracked up to be. It is, it is meetings. It is um, a lot of headaches that you didn't realize that you had. Um, and so I am so much less of a coach now than I was previously. That's what people don't understand is, to be honest, I'm not a strength coach anymore a lot of days. It, you take off that hat because you have so many other roles. Your time is extremely, extremely, um, what the word is here, obviously valuable, but that's not the word I'm looking for. It is, it is, it's under demand at all times because there's always somebody walking through that door that says, hey, I've got a problem. A coach walking in the door says, hey, I've got a problem with this staff member. It's always something. Just walking out of the building in the evenings to go to my car, you get stopped by two, three, four people. And before you know it, my wife is yelling at me because I, I told her I was leaving 35 minutes ago. And she's like, where in, the, where in the F are you? Well, I got stopped three times on the way to the parking lot with issues. And so you are less of a coach um, than you ever dreamed of. A lot of times I find myself, this is where it's been the most difficult is, is time management. A lot of times I find myself having to write my programs with baseball at midnight at home because I don't have time during, during the day. To, to do that stuff, to do that work, because it's meetings. It's like I said, the pop-in, somebody randomly coming in the office, a phone call. Um, we've got this problem. And now you've got you've to figure these situations out while you're on campus. And um, yeah, so a lot of times I'm taking my work home with me. And, and to me, that's, I shouldn't do that. I have to manage my time better. And that's one of the things that I've had to clean up in the last, uh, in the last couple months. Switching gears a little bit into the actual X's and O's of baseball, um, you know, one of the things I think most people know you for is how prominent max velocity work is with your baseball team. Um, if you don't mind kind of just diving into a little bit of that and how you've been able to evolve it in your time there. Yeah, so started out as a young strength coach. Um, I believed all the things that, you know, that were prominent 20 years ago that you don't do max speed work because you're going to hurt the athletes. You know, you're going to have a hamstring issue. Um, these were things that I was kind of taught as a young strength coach. Um, and how that's evolved is just realizing and understanding that you have to inoculate them against that. Right. And so the principles for us are going to be fast, fresh, and frequent. We want to run fast when we're training speed. I want that, you know, Charlie Francis, 95% um, plus as far as our intent or intensities. Um, fresh. We want our guys to be, to feel good every time that they, uh, they go out to try to run fast and a plan B is always better than the plan A of getting hurt. Right? So if they've got hamstring issues, if they've got anything going on, I tell them, you have to communicate that to me before we ever run a rep full speed. I tell them you need to, you need to let us know how you're feeling. If you don't feel up to it, I want you to stay a half step to one step under, which is what we consider our 90 to 95% zone. Um, <clears throat> So we'll say half step to one step underneath max intent. We're still going to get some good work out of it, but there is an exponential difference between 85% sprints and a hundred percent sprints in intent. Um, we had a, um, we had a uh, zoom a few, this was uh, last semester or two semesters ago with uh, um, Dr. Heiderscheidt from the university of Wisconsin. And he is the lead researcher for uh, hamstring injuries in the NFL. And so they've done research on the difference in sprinting between, I think it was 85 or 90% and what a max effort 100% sprint was on, I think it was 
you know, motor unit activation or, or whatever it was, EMG readings possibly. And there was just an exponential difference in that small little gap. And so if we've got guys that are having issues, we say 90 to 95% that half step to one step underneath full intent, we'll still get good work in. So it's communicating with the athletes on that fresh. And then uh, frequency, you know, we want to touch max speed every week, essentially. So I tell the athletes this all the time, that frequency is the most important thing. Baseball is a real challenge because the athletes go home for five weeks before they start the first day of practice, essentially. And so they have to stay on their stuff. That's why you see so many injuries in spring training and preseason baseball. That's when all the injuries stack up is because they've been on their own for the previous four, four or five weeks. And if they haven't been doing their stuff with intent that we want, matching the demands of the sport, you're going to come in and you're going to break in those first four weeks of practices. So that frequency has to be there. I tell them, I don't care if you lift in the weight room over Christmas break. I don't care. That's not what I need. I need you to be hitting the volumes, the intensities and the densities that we're going to, we're going to see on field and practice so that you're matching the demands. The, the, the barbell isn't out on the field. I don't need you to match the squat demands of baseball. I need you to match the movement demands. And with that means we have to hit high speeds on a weekly basis. For any of our baseball or even softball listeners out there, has there been, or excuse me, what was, if any, pushback you had from the coaches on being able to touch that quality? And then what would you advise to our listeners that are trying to work with their coaches and uh, their high-performance teams? Yeah, the um, I, I don't know that I've ever really gotten any pushback. Um, and part of that is because I continually educated our coaching staff from the, from the moment I got into TCU and I took this job. Um, I, I talked about this in the presentation at CVAPS. It's a continual education process in our staff meetings, um, throughout, the, throughout the year, really. If there's something I wanna do, change, I'll notify those guys, but I'll, I'll educate them on why we're doing that. So even just on my interview process, I had a PowerPoint put together. I mean, most coaches are doing something like this. I educated them on the standards that I have, all the uh, principles of our programming and how we're gonna operate. So they knew before they hired me what they were getting. The first day or the first week that I was on campus, I did that same thing again for the coaching staff and the players because I wanted the players to understand exactly where I was coming from, all the principles that I believe in and how we are going to train. Speed and power are the first of those principles. That's what we are gonna, we're gonna chase speed and power all day long with our athletes. And so I educated them from the first day. And we used to do that. I don't necessarily do it as much anymore with the athletes because it's a continual education process in the workout, the training session itself. But for the first, you know, 10 or 12 years, I would sit down with the athletes when they walked on campus that first, uh, that first few weeks. And we would go through that PowerPoint again. And I would tell them, here are the standards, the principles, everything, the expectations that I have for you in our training sessions so that there was never any question just to get everybody on board. So to me, it is a continual education process because the only reason that coaching staffs wouldn't allow you to do speed work or anything else that should have be happening in any, you know, in any competent training session is because they are uneducated about it. They're uneducated, right? And sometimes, yes, you're going to find coaching staffs that, that won't bend and, and, you know, that's a tough situation. But to me, you can always overcome that with education. 
And there were times outside of speed development that I did have to educate and was beating your head against the wall all the time. But eventually it got through. Um, I used to have, you know, I used to have um, our um, orthopedic surgeons come in. In fact, we had uh, our, our spine ortho come in and he gave a talk to our coaching staff on pars fractures because we would have a plethora of back injuries, right? And so I preach about this all the time. In the South, we see pars fractures all the time. So pars fractures for, for the listeners out there are basically a stress fracture in the lumbar spine from overextension and rotation. They are the most common teenage injury, especially in males that you're gonna see across the board. Happens in the South a ton because warm weather, we are playing all the time. You don't really see it much in the North. Um, so we came in, we had the uh, spine ortho come in and give a talk to our coaching staff on parse fractures, how they come about, why they are not the fault of the weight room and just educate our staff about, about why they are prevalent in baseball and what's going on. And so it was a chance to educate and coming out of that meeting, our head coach had a better understanding because I could talk to him all day long about why the weight room is not creating these parse fractures. It's the, you know, one hour, three times a week in the weight room is not the problem versus these high school kids who are playing baseball for, you know, five hours a day, taking swings in a cage with, with two different coaches, um, a, a, a lessons coach on the side as well. And then, you know, they're doing this for 20 hours a week the weight room isn't the problem. And so I needed somebody else to get that message across. And so that's, we've, we've done things with uh, our orthopedic surgeons to help get that message across. I mean, that's fantastic. Anybody that's listening to that, hopefully you wrote, wrote stuff down because I know I did about how you could potentially work to educate. Um, did you also have, you know, throughout that educational process, were there any times gaining groups of the, the players like, Hey, you know what, you know, my friends at these schools, they're not doing this and they're more successful just because again, I know our listeners out there, they have situations like that. They, they talk about it, um, you know, on, on the site, has that happened and how do you handle any of those situations with your athletes? And if not, I mean, that's awesome. More power to you. Yeah. So no, I really don't face that problem ever. Um, and, and part of it is because of the uh, culture that we've instilled and the culture that has been in place for the 16 years that I've been here. Myself and the head coach, who is actually at the Texas A&M now, he left a year ago, uh, the former head coach, we were very much on the same wavelength as far as culture development, as far as the standards and expectations of the program. And so I couldn't have been put into a better situation. And that's really what should go back to the first question I think you asked about how have you been at some place so long? It was because the head coach and I saw eye to eye and had the same standards expectations across the board for the program of where the program needed to go. And that's where you see a lot of problems with, um, with people moving in our field. It's because the head coach and the performance coach, strength and conditioning don't see eye to eye and it's continually butting heads. And sometimes you have to, you, you have to make exceptions or find another job in a way, but that is why I was able to stay in place for so long is because of that. And because of those standards, expectations, and the culture we set, we don't have athletes that come in here and say, hey, I want to do this, this, and this, or um, I don't believe in what we're doing. My buddy's doing this. I saw this on social media. I really never run into that problem. And, and I would attribute, attribute some of that to the fact that we educated them early on when I would come in and I would give them all those you know, educational talks to to emphasize why we're doing what we're doing 
so that we didn't have any backlash against it. You know, I, I really don't face that problem at all. No, that's awesome. And is this, so you teed up the CVAS uh, question that I was going to ask you about, was that head coach, the same one that you talked about, asked you why are all strength coaches so bitter? Yes, that was the exact, yes, same one. So for anybody that's listening now that was not at CVAS, if you could, you know, say that story again, because I think, you know, I know it hit home with me and some of my other friends that were there, they definitely, you know, took notes on that. Yeah. So this was uh, my second or third year at, uh, at TCU here. And I walked into the uh, baseball staff's office on a Saturday before practice at, uh, in the fall. Football was on the road. I didn't travel with football at that time um, or that, that Saturday, that particular Saturday. And so had a Saturday off or, or no, let me rephrase this question. We had a recruit coming in on Saturday. This was during the week. I'm sorry. I, I screwed this up a little bit. We had a recruit coming in on Saturday. During the week, I walk into the office and uh, our head coach says, hey, we got a recruit that's going to be here on Saturday. I need you in here at 9 a.m. Talk to this kid. And I didn't say anything, but I showed it in my body language. And he snapped at me and he was like, you know, why are all strength coaches so jaded? And there was a few more choice words in there than that. But I was like, what the hell is this guy talking about? And he's like, every strength coach I have ever worked with is jaded. They're a pain in the ass that, hate, that, that hates their job, that hates life, and act like you. I was like, man. I walked out of the office, um, bitched to friends, bitched to colleagues. And then I realized, like, this guy was right. Because my attitude, my energy towards something that I love, which is developing human beings, developing athletes through the uh, vehicle of strength and conditioning. I love it. I was portraying the attitude and energy of a lot of my colleagues that I had basically been around because what I had come up in strength and conditioning and a lot of my current colleagues at the time were traditional strength coaches. I don't, I don't know what to call it, but your traditional old school strength coaches that were like F the staff. F administration. Everybody's out to get us. They all hate us. We don't get paid enough. We get overworked. And all these thoughts and feelings that that really, you know, a lot of strength and conditioning coaches have. And I realized I was letting their energy, their attitude reflect in me to my athletes and coaching staff. And it was from that moment on that I realized I had to change. I had to be somebody different. I couldn't do that anymore. And really what it was, was if I was going to go anywhere in this field, especially with um, TCU baseball, the, the, the head coach at the time, it was going to have to, it was going to have to be me separating myself from all the traditional strength and conditioning, you know, um, thoughts and feelings that I had grown up in. And so that was the moment that I switched and, and uh, it was a, it was a, it was a life-changing moment for me. Um, and then on top of that, you know, the other big thing that helped give me authority for all the listeners out there was social media. It was being a positive influence on social media and just using it at the time to educate because my coaching staff saw that. They read the stuff that I was putting out. The administration here saw that. I, uh, I retweeted an article one time by, uh, oh, who was it? Uh, let's see. Um, I can't remember. Worked in administration, you know, he's a big time baseball strength coach. Uh, anyway, he wrote an article, I believe, that uh, talked about how strength coaches are undervalued, underappreciated, and how you can create, you know, more of these things for yourself. And I retweeted it and, and wrote a little thing on it. And our athletic director was like, 
hey, I just saw your article. I want to talk to you about this. Uh, I want to see how we can be, you know, we can create change in this in this field for you guys. So just something like that. Like these people are watching. And so it helped to give me authority um, probably more than anything else. I continually educated them in staff meetings, but it was when I had social media and I started gathering a following and and the snowball kind of started rolling that these that the people around me started considering me as as uh, as the authority a little bit and so that helped tremendously i want to before we go into the the social media side or or any of the um, the fact that you wrote a book do you also have to present and educate at an even higher level whether it be senior level and at like all staff meetings because some of i know are uh athletic assistant athletic directors do that um and if so what is your advice on how to you know again put that hat on and manage that room or manage donors because i know um you know fundraising has become something that these assistant ad positions are doing yeah so i haven't done it uh to a large degree yet i do with our administrators um it's the same way it's it's it, really it's educating them but it's educating them a little bit differently it's it's uh, educating them on the importance of, honestly, it's, it's advocating for our staff members a lot. It's advocating with the sport coaches on our staff members. Um, what I probably do more of is, is just that, advocate for our staff um, to try to get raises, to, to try to uh, change titles and things like that. Um, it's very early on in my tenure. As far as a director now, you know, I've, I think I've been in this role officially overseeing everything now for right at a year. Um, but yes, it's educating the, uh, the uh, administration. It just, you just go about it differently, right? It's not, they don't care about the, the principles behind your speed work, right? <laughs> they care about the things of, of, of like, here's why I need money for this technology. Here's why, um, here's why this coach needs to get a bump in pay, or we need to change his title and restructure the department. Um, it's those types of things to try to advocate and elevate our coaching staff versus versus like you know we've been talking about the strength and conditioning principles they don't they don't care about that stuff right and um you know ideally this field needs to move towards where you have a performance coach that oversees multiple departments um psychology um performance strength and conditioning what i call what we call performance now but strength and conditioning the nutritional side you know, whether it's sports medicine, somebody that oversees all those departments so that you have a holistic vision moving forward and not these siloed, siloed approaches. And that's something that that's where we're trying to educate the administration so that we eliminate people that really have no, um, they have no like reason to be, what's the word I'm looking for here? I, I can't, I can't think today. It's like, I got CTE going on. <laughs> they shouldn't be overseeing our department right because you have administrators everywhere that have never never trained an athlete have, have never worked as a coach that oversees strength and conditioning right and so the goal is to um the goal is to get people where they can value and and um, judge or or review how strength coaches are actually doing right? Because they've been in that setting, they've been in that scenario. And that's really what, what the ultimate goal is, is, is to create the uh, vision for administration so that we create a position of, of a performance, uh, 
administrator that oversees all these different departments so that we can have a holistic vision going forward so that sports medicine and strength and conditioning understand the, the rehab process. Those processes are standardized so that you know exactly where your role is, where, where that happens, because that is a big, big, big missing piece in our field a lot of times, right? Silos again. The strength coach thinks he should be doing PT and rehab stuff over here, and it pisses off the ATCs. And you get this back and forth battle a lot of times between um, between staffs that are that think they each need to do this, and they're not working together. And so it's trying to create that holistic vision. That's that's what it is. How do you handle that? You know that exact need that you talked about for collaboration, but respecting it in an authentic way, but also understanding that, like you said, people may have other jobs that they have to do during the day. So they don't have the ability to be like, Hey, all right, everybody's going to live together at this time, or, Hey, we're going to go ahead and learn about this together. How, in your opinion, does that get resolved? Yeah. I mean, that's not, that's not an easy one for, for us. It is, um, it's trying to um, create the relationship as best as you can with the other departments. Um, and I think that, I think when you have your performance coaches, we have a very, very fortunate situation in that all of our staff basically has a big sport and then one other Olympic sport in there as well. So, um, you know, I've got baseball. I train rifle as well. Um, the uh, office next to me, Coach Larson, has women's basketball and equestrian. And so when we only have a few sport responsibilities, it's trying to get that coach to go and be involved with the sport as much as possible. I talk about this, talked about this in CVACs as well. The field is going to where strength coaches are very specialized. And so we want you to be at practice. I want you to know what the hell is going on at practice. I want you to know the demands that are happening, what your coach's expectations and standards are at practices. And when, you, when, you, when you're a part of the team in every facet, you have relationships with your athletic trainer because you guys are working hand in hand. And so that's the thought process we want is I need you to be involved with the team at every level, not just in the weight room. Because when I started 20 years ago, it was, hey, soccer team will be up there at uh, 215 to lift. I did a you know mobility session, quick mobility session, warm up, we're off to the lift, send you guys out of here. Next team's rolling in, right? You got nine other teams that you have to train. They go out and do speed work, conditioning, agility, whatever they were doing with their coaching staff and you had no idea what was going on. You were in the weight room, you ran it like, it was basically an assembly line. They just team, 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 team. You didn't do anything outside of that. Now, strength and conditioning coaches are becoming very specialized. That's the future. Um, we have a great situation with only a few sports per coach. So go out and be a part of that team as much as you can so that you build, build relationships with all the sports staff, the coaches, the, the uh, sports medicine. And that gives us the ability to be able to bridge those gaps a little bit better, in my opinion, when that time comes. We had uh, Justin Kavanaugh on the show this week, and he talked about the fact that um, as you talk about specialized strength coaches, he said now today more than ever, you don't have to be a former athlete of that sport. And now you're working in it. Um, you know, he obviously said there's pros and cons to it, right? Like kids that wanted to be in a certain sport. Now they can. But also the, the downside is maybe you didn't play it, so you don't know exactly what's going on. I'd like to hear your two cents on it in, in terms of that specialization and you know almost the fact that you could work with any sport. Is it good? Is it bad? Yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's a good thing. Um, 
I was a guy, I played high school baseball. I didn't play college baseball. I went and worked for the Anaheim Angels for two years and got the job at TCU because I had been in professional baseball, but played college football. It was a football baseball role here. And that's, that's why it was a perfect fit for me. But I didn't come from a baseball, you know, a college baseball athlete background. And that actually helped me when I got to pro baseball, because at the time, um, pro baseball was, it was, uh, it was an interesting place as a strength coach. Um, I'll give you an example. We had 15 machines in a room and the workout training session for the uh, athletes, the, the pro baseball guys was uh, one set of 15 to 20 on every machine. Just go down the row, go down this row. And it was like tricep extensions, right? The, the old preacher curl, tricep extension, tri, or bicep curl, crunch machine. That's what the workout was. And so I came into the situation and had very, very outside the box thoughts about what baseball should be. Speed training, you know, the, the power stuff. I, was, I came from a background of football and track and field and everything I had read and studied was Eastern Bloc, Soviet research, all that stuff. And so my thoughts were walking into a professional baseball organization were so far away from what baseball was. That actually helped me. That helped me early on in my career a ton. And that's part of what, I guess, um, gave, me the, um, gave me the soapbox to stand on was that people were like, well, this isn't how baseball is done. And we were, we were training in season. We were lifting on game days. And so that was a big, big piece of it in that I didn't have the preconceived notions walking into it because I had been a baseball guy, right? And so that helped me tremendously. Now, on the flip side, there's times when, you know, you, you, you get guys that weren't a part of sport that kind of have no feel. There's, there's you know, in, in baseball, you, you have to have some feel in the locker room, in the dugout. Um, and so you do miss that sometimes with guys that, with, with, uh, with coaches, I shouldn't say guys, but men and women that haven't been around the sport, sometimes they lack feel and that has to be learned a little bit. But um, I, I think it's, I think it's absolutely fine that you weren't in the sport to train it now. Uh, another question on that is in terms of this specialized, you know, strength coaches, I personally feel like there's a starting growing trend where maybe they're only good enough at that sport because everything to them has to be just sport specific. Are you, are, are we as a field losing the ability to, to kind of coach anybody in any setting if you had to? Yeah, that's the one downside of it is you get, you get tied into one thing and you know, if you don't have a great, uh, if you don't have a great network around you to learn and, you know, places like strength, uh, strength coach network to go see other stuff, then, yeah, I think you get tied into your, uh, your, your thoughts a little bit too much. And I think it limits you. This is why I recommend, and this is tough, but I recommend all of our interns, our young coaches. I say the best thing that you can do is go to a, a small school where you have nine other teams. Now, the problem is, is that you end up having to run the weight room a little bit too much as that uh, assembly line where you have to bring a team in, they're out, bring a team in, they're out. You might, not get, you might not get to participate in practices as much, but you get so much more out of, out of time management, out of building efficient systems, understanding how to um, manipulate the space and the equipment that you have. I was a GA, uh, an athlete and a GA at Missouri State. We had six racks. We had you know, two and a half med balls. <laughs> the interns here, we have a room downstairs with 
probably 90 to 150 med balls, right? They have access to anything that they want. And I'm like, when you leave here and go somewhere else and you're actually paid to coach, they're not going to have this. They're not going to have 12, six pound med balls and 10, four pounders or, you know, 15 tens. You're going to have a 12, a six and a broken 20 that's spitting out, you know, spitting out sand. And you're going to have to figure out how to make this stuff work. And the best thing you can do is go somewhere where you don't have everything, because then you really, really learn not only how to coach, but how to program efficiently around your equipment, your, your, your space, your time. And so I think the best thing young coaches can do is go somewhere that's not a power five with access to everything. All right, let's change. Uh, like I said, we, you, you teased it before, but, um, you know, obviously you have a presence on, on social media for strength and conditioning coaches. You also wrote a book. Um, I don't know if other people have read it or what the other people feel about it. Um, it's in our internship curriculum. So it, it's a well-known book uh, where I'm at. So talk about how you were able to do that. Um, a, B, what inspired you to do it and C, how did you still keep the main thing, the main thing and coach while doing, you know, those other things. Yeah. So, uh, it, it came out of necessity and I didn't have to create anything. So this is what it was. I've for 16 years, really for 20 years, since I've been in strength and conditioning, I had a foundation program. These are the foundational movements that I want my athletes to know and learn. This is how you learn how to lift because I was a young strength coach. Like we talked about at Missouri state, I had a lot of female teams, many of these female athletes had never stepped foot in a weight room. They didn't know anything about holding the barbell at the time. And so I taught these foundational movements. This is what you have to know so that we can advance in strength and conditioning over the next two or three, four years that you're here. That's all it was. So I've always had this program around. I got so many emails from baseball coaches when I got to TCU about, hey, send me a program. Will you send me what you're doing? Or what should I do with my high school kids? How would you program this? And first off, I can't send you the program because, you know, you have no idea what these exercises movements are. I'm not going to do that. And so it was just a continually, it was just a continual beating of what should I do with my athletes? What should I do with my athletes from high school coaches? And so I knew the need was there. And so, you know, I, it took me 14 months to write the book. And I would say 11 of those months were staring at a screen trying to like figure out what I should say without telling somebody what to do, how, you know, cause how do you write, how do you tell somebody what the workout is? There's so much context that goes into it. And I was like, man, I don't want to tell everybody the secrets. I don't want to give them all the secrets of what we do and how to implement this. So how can I sneakily type this thing up so that you really don't know what we do, but you kind of do. And then I heard um, a famous, he was a famous baseball coach at LSU that, had won multiple national titles back in the uh, 80s. And he was implementing sports psychology at the time when nobody else was. And he gave away the program. He wrote it and gave it away. And I heard him do an interview and he said, you know, they said, coach, you're giving your program away. Everybody's going to be beating at national championships now because you're giving them the secret stuff. And he's like, nobody else will run this the way that I run it. It doesn't matter what I give them. I'll tell them everything. Nobody will ever run this the way I run it because I run it unique to my, my system. And it, the light bulb went off and I was like, that's it. That's absolutely it. And so the day I heard that, I started typing. I took a Saturday and I might've wrote this in two Saturdays actually, but then, you know, the refining process, all that. 
I just started writing. When our kids stepped on campus the first day, I started writing what we did. Here's the warm-up. Here's what we do with them. Here's how we teach the front squat. I wrote it ver like verbatim from what we do. And that's it. And that was the easiest thing I ever did. I spent 11 or 12 months like smacking my face on a computer, not knowing what to write. How should I type this? How should I do this? And then I just was like, screw that. I'm just going to write this out, how we do it. And then I'll take it from there. I'll pull stuff out if I need to. I didn't pull anything out. And so you just have to do it. That's all it was. And how did I do it? I did it during baseball in season because we have, we have uh, lots of travel and downtime. Um, I used, uh, we got snowed in one time at Kansas, uh, at the University of Kansas in Lawrence. Couldn't take a flight out of Kansas City, so it took a nine-hour bus ride home. And so I wrote probably three-quarters of it on that, created some of the charts. So baseball uh, in-season is very, very uh, helpful for when I need to create a product. But that's how it's, it was just tell people what we do. They're not going to run it like I do. And it's so funny because I guarantee you, all your coaches out there that are thinking about putting out a product are having the same thoughts I, I am and that I don't want to tell people the secrets. I don't want to tell them what we do, how we structure this. BS. I'm telling you right now, that book has sold a whole bunch of copies. And I get emails every day from coaches that say, Hey, how do we, how do we do this? How do we set up the program on Mondays? And I'm like, I literally put the work. I put the Excel spreadsheet in there. It's like the workouts in there. You don't, it's in there. That's telling you that they will not do it. Like you do it ever. I get that all the time. Hey, we don't know how to, you know, how do you do five sets of five on the front squad? Is it this, is it? And you're like, no, it's just, they won't do it. Like you do it. Nobody will be able to copy what you have. So just put it out there. I've heard Boyle say the exact same thing, and um, I, I feel the exact same way as you. How about your ability? You know, what was your what was your secret to to beating the algorithm and growing a following on social media? Man, I don't know anything about the algorithm. I didn't even know algorithms existed until <laughs> until Kier started talking about that. Um, all it was was consistent. It was consistent education, and so I tried to just try to post daily, really. And I talked about what we were doing and it was, I, I tried to keep it all positive at the time, which from hearing Kier talk about the algorithm is actually the worst thing that you can do. But I didn't want to represent the university myself or, or our baseball program in a negative light. And so I was, uh, I felt fortunate that they were allowing me to do that and use that as a platform to grow in a way my brand. And so I wasn't going to embarrass anybody with anything that I said and put on social media. But the only thing it was, was consistent education. That's, that's how it's got to this point, consistent education. And it is really freaking hard, man. It's really hard to keep up with social media and to create content and to, and, and, and to do that on a consistent basis. That's where people fail is they can't do it consistently. Months, 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 years, years, years. They can't keep up with it. Um, you know, like I said, you're, you're in season. So first of all, you're in season. We're going to expect movement over maxes part two uh this summer because you're going to be uh you know traveling yeah. and hopefully you know there was just not uh, there was the ice storm in dallas not too long ago yeah. like you should have been writing oh yeah you should have got <laughs> at least part two halfway done um so we're gonna... i mean it's funny you say that because that is actually on the list for uh it's a release in the fall would be the advances to uh moving over maxes yeah see you know you heard it here first everybody um 
So we'll let you go. Uh, go ahead and just let everybody know where they can, you know, continue to follow you more on social media. We're going to put it in the show notes, but oh, <clears throat> excuse me, that way people know where they can continue to learn from you. Yeah, everything's going to be uh, Zach Dakin, basically. So Twitter, Instagram, those are the two big platforms. Those are at Zach Dakin. ZachDakin.com is where you can, you know, find all the products, um, any of the blog stuff that I post. So, yeah. Appreciate you, man. Go, uh, go about the rest of your day and have a good one. Yeah. Thanks, Justin.